Hello, I'm Nick Spencer, and you're listening to the seventh series of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. Listen with us, and we'll explore the new elites, the meaning of God, the coming economic crash, the transformation of the earth, the mind of humans and aliens, food in hard times, what it means to be a philosopher, the end of the world. And in a special live recording in London in November, we'll be looking at the coming age of the machine. Is China's economy a ticking time bomb? So ran the title of a BBC News article in late August this year. The answer was yes, maybe. Slow growth, record youth unemployment, low foreign investment, weak exports and a property sector in crisis, things weren't looking good for the world's biggest economy. And if they're not looking good for the world's biggest economy, then they're not looking good for the world. So, when should we expect the next great crash? And what should we do about it when it comes? We have at least got prior form here. Economic crashes are hardly rarities. In spite of occasional optimistic noises to the contrary, there is something about human nature that keeps on crashing the economic car. It's only because, in the words of J.K. Galbraith, there are few fields of human endeavour in which history counts for so little as the world of finance that we are so often unprepared for what is basically inevitable. Readers of Linda Yu's new book, The Great Crashes, will not be unprepared. Linda is fellow in economics at St Edmund Hall, Oxford, and her book offers readers, in the words of its subtitle, lessons from global meltdowns and how to prevent them. Linda, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. You begin the book with a short introductory chapter on the Great Crash of 1929, which in many ways became paradigmatic, at least in the popular mind, of all crashes afterwards. It's a big question to start with, but tell us what happened then and in particular what the response was. It's a great point to start because the 1929 Great Crash really does hold a special place and there have been a lot of financial crises over the centuries, so that is saying something. And the lessons that I draw in the book about the three phases of the financial crises over the past century actually largely derive from the 1929 Great Crash, which is the first stage is euphoria. Oh, surely asset prices can only ever go up. And then people pile in with debt. And then the second phase is, well, how do you resolve it all? Credibility is hugely important. And then thirdly, the aftermath. That depends, of course, on the first two phases. And the 1929 Great Crash resulted in the 1930s Great Depression, which lasted for about a decade. In the 1920s, there were so many technological advances making people feel optimistic about widespread electrification, consumer goods, the automobile, even flights, um, aircraft. Mm. So the increase in the stock market in the U.S. was phenomenal. And of course, as with all these things, where there is a boom, there is a bust. So when the bubble burst, it ended up triggering uh, defaults across real estate. The banking system went into meltdown. All of that becomes uh, part of the euphoric rise. And of course, that first phase, um, if it's characterized by a lot of debt, when the bubble bursts, there's going to be issues. 
did anyone know at the time that it was the kind of euphoria that's going to end? Did anyone expect a crash? Well, that's the thing about crashes. Um, there's always somebody who says afterwards they expected a crash. <laughs> afterwards, and I'm sure, yes. Yeah, well, <laughs> to be fair, I think there are people who, uh, who do constantly warn about crashes. So what I think is, um, this is, again, a great first lesson to draw, which is you see this throughout history. So the dot-com bubble and crash, that's when the term irrational exuberance was coined. That's so Alan I Greenspan, use, isn't it? Yes, and uh, Bob Schiller, who is the Nobel laureate economist who was called in at the time to uh, present to the Fed chairman um, whether or not it was a fundamental increase in value, or was it a bubble? Yes. <laughs> and, uh, and so it's very hard to tell the difference, and you see this throughout history. So there were a series of things in the second phase which made the 1929 Great Crash a great source of lessons to try and avoid having a massive meltdown on the basis of a crisis. And that's just worth stressing because the subtitle of my book is Lessons from Global Meltdowns and how to prevent them. Mm. It's not to prevent the next crisis, because there'll always be another financial crisis, but not every crisis has to trigger a great depression or a great recession like we saw after 2008. So the lessons on how to prevent a meltdown, the 1929 crash holds lots of them around credibility. So FDR is the story that I tell in the book. Um, he was a new president. That's Franklin um, Roosevelt, yes. Yes, uh, Delano Roosevelt, who had just become president, and he was confronted with a month-long bank run. He shut down the entire banking system and then shut down all the stock markets. And over the course of a weekend, they put in effectively deposit insurance, working with Congress. And he told Americans in what became known as his fireside chat on the radio, believe me, only the sound banks will reopen on Monday. So it'd be safer to put your money in the bank than under your mattress. And there must have been sighs of relief when mm. there was queuing again on Monday, but people were actually putting their money back into the banks. And that tells you that he was credible, so they believed him. But I always say it's helpful to be backed up by legislation that effectively guaranteed everybody's deposits. So it was his credibility in the eyes of the public that managed to very slowly turn the ship round a good three years or so after the crash. I think that's a fascinating detail, isn't it? It was the two or three years of response or non-response after the crash itself that turned a recession into a depression, right? Yeah, so there was an interesting contrast with 1921. There was a big stock market crash in 1921, but the 1921 crash ended up with the roaring 20s that followed it. So that to me is a good example of the importance of economic policies like monetary and fiscal policy. So why was 1929 so much worse than 1921? And monetary policy played a big role in it. So it was expansionary in 21, and it was hard to get credit and money through the economy in 1929. And so that meant that the Great Depression was just rumbling on until 
FDR took office, and he was able to do what his predecessor couldn't do in three years, um, which was all of these measures and his credibility. But this role of policy is hugely important to remember because he turned the corner on the Great Depression, but the Great Depression rumbled on. There was so much that still needed to be sorted. The U.S. economy went into a second recession, and it wasn't until 1941, in the midst of World War II, that the Great Depression was finally ended. So this third phase was a decade-long recession, and the misery was so prevalent that it's to avoid repeating those mistakes of the 1930s that makes the 1929 Great Crash such a great example. You very helpfully laid that out for us, and in particular, this division in the book between or the stages or phases, euphoria, credibility, aftermath. And you also make clear later on in the book that the lessons around credibility were definitely learned when it came to the Great Credit Crunch and late 2000s. But I don't want to leave euphoria just yet because I find this area particularly interesting. Unpack a bit more for us why we continually fall for this euphoric sense that things are only going to get better. And in particular, is lack of regulation a problem here, as well as over-excitement amongst the markets? So I think it's captured pretty well in this phrase, FOMO, fear of missing out. My book covers a century of financial crises, but of course, there are a number of books that go back centuries in terms of euphoria, believing in tulips, or the Japanese one, I think, was like cats or something. There's always something that makes you feel euphoric. And the thing, as we were just saying a moment ago, it's very hard to tell whether or not an asset is increasing because fundamentally, this is a sector that's going to transform everything. And working out if something is really just a bubble. So the best example of this is actually the dot-com bubble. Alan Greenspan was known as a very meticulous central banker. He was very focused on data, and he wanted to be presented with arguments by leading academics and leading economists from Wall Street about the dot-coms. Is this fundamentally going to transform our society? Is e-commerce, online, everything, is that the future or is this a bubble? And he ended up concluding it was impossible to tell, (laughs) really, in a a nutshell. So that actually tells you how hard it is to work it out. And then, of course, you can argue the dot-coms were just ahead of their time Mm. because it's true, e-commerce is transformative. And so had they started maybe a decade or so later, when people actually had broadband as opposed to dollar modems, you know, that could have played out differently. And so I'm using that as an example because this exuberance or irrational exuberance or euphoria, which characterizes all of the bubbles of history, it also characterizes episodes where you do have transformative technologies. So the key, and this is where I think is one of the personal lessons for everyone, (laughs) maybe, is um, don't pile in with too much debt. Yes. And the debt point is important, isn't it? It's not just fear of missing out. You're so afraid of missing out that you leverage yourself enormously to make sure you're in with the crowd. And then when everything falls, you're left with a mountain of debt that's unpayable. Yeah. So you mentioned a moment ago, regulation. Regulation is now shifting towards what's called leaning against the wind. 
up until even 2008, the belief that um, central bankers would just let a bubble burst, it comes from this 1955 speech by the then Fed chairman who said, who wants to be the chaperone who takes away the punch bowl just when the party's getting started. <laughs> but now they're more likely to take away the punch bowl by leaning against the wind. So on this point of too much debt, normally in a rising market, a bank the collateral that they hold, say, is your house. So they lend you money, give you a mortgage, and they hold your house as collateral. As your house price goes up, the collateral value on their balance sheets go up, which means they can lend out more because it's a fractional banking system. What macroprudential regulation, which has been brought in after the 2008 global financial crisis does, is it leans against the wind so that when you do have an asset price rise, rather than allowing banks to lend more against the same asset just because it's risen in value, they start to limit things like loan-to-value ratios on mortgages. So what they're trying to do is deflate yes. uh, this increase in asset prices, mostly by managing debt. So regulator authorities can try and deflate the bubble and stop the debt mounting too greatly. But if that doesn't happen or doesn't happen sufficiently, the bubble bursts and we're on to this second phase, which is credibility, the way in which the financial and political authorities are able to reassure people and restore some confidence in the markets. That didn't happen in 1929, or not through to at least FDR, and nor did it happen sufficiently with the euro crisis. Now, there was a response there, but that response had certain credibility problems, didn't it? What were they? Yeah, it's a great example that you've picked because that's actually the example of credibility, which I think has the strongest parallel to FDR. And I'm thinking of Mario Draghi, the European Central Bank president. So just to back up a moment about the euro crisis, so the European banks had been devastated by the US subprime crisis in 2008. The entire European banking system was quite vulnerable after the US subprime uh, crisis and many of the banks had already been rescued. Is in that context that Greece announced that its debt levels as a share of GDP was higher than it thought, and then it was much higher <laughs> than it thought, which is unfortunate. That was the first real test of the euro. Because it was so new, the euro area countries shared a single currency, but they didn't share fiscal policy. So there's no European finance ministry. In the examples that we've discussed, I've always talked about the central bank and then the treasury, two arms of the government. Now, the treasury spends and taxes. So if you're looking at government spending, that's what you should be looking to. But that was controlled by individual states. The institutions around that were underdeveloped. So think about markets that became very connected. So European banks lent pretty freely across the euro area because there's no currency risk. Mm. And they all had the same interest rate. And so... You ended up with countries which did become indebted. So Greece, Portugal, um, Ireland, and then eventually Spain and Cyprus, their banking systems were also rescued. Then the euro area put in new institutions like a banking union, a European IMF meant to rescue countries. But all of that came as the crisis was developing. So if you're looking for a credible set of policies to address a crisis or institutions, the euro just didn't have those to hand. So 2010, 
you saw these huge rescues. 2011, the euro crisis was not just rumbling on. The creditors, the investors who were buying government debt, um, started to become really worried about the future of the euro. They were beginning to ask for more money to lend to even safe countries like France and Italy, which are the second and third biggest countries in the euro area. And then I think because markets are so used to international comparisons, as in they could look at what the US central bank was doing, the Bank of England, and they were buying bonds in the bond market. So if you're a bond investor, if you were to buy bonds, lend money to these countries, and the central bank is doing it right next to you, it seems to give bond markets confidence that that was happening. But because the ECB, remember individual countries issued debt, So they didn't really have the equivalent of of the US and Britain. So bond investors were pretty unhappy about the ECB not having a bond buying program. So all of this was just rumbling on until July of 2012. There was a global investment summit that day in central London. And Mario Draghi, who's the ECB president, gave his whatever it takes speech. So I remember this distinctly. He said, basically, all of you misunderstand the political will behind the euro. Believe me when I say that we will ensure the future of the euro, we will do whatever it takes. And believe me, it will be enough. Yes. So that speech meant that bond markets believed him. And you can see the tension in the bond markets begin to dissipate. And what was extraordinary about that speech was Timothy Geithner, the US Treasury Secretary, went to Frankfurt afterwards and said, tell me about the speech. And apparently um, the ECB told him that Draghi had ad-libbed it. Yeah. It wasn't in the prepared remarks. There was no policy behind it. But he did have other people behind him. So the Eurozone leaders, Angela Merkel, who's the German chancellor, was hugely influential. She and the German and the Italian prime ministers came out and said they backed the irreversibility of the euro. But the interesting thing about that is that when Draghi makes that speech, he doesn't actually have the authority to do so because he's not speaking as a political executive, is he? I mean, the cuts that are going to be necessary for the stabilisation of the euro are going to have to be made by national governments. And understandably, the Greek national government was very resistant to make them. So it's difficult to understand on what legitimate basis he could make that promise. This is an interesting point about credibility. Thinking back to the FDR example in 1933, because the crisis had gone on for so long, Congress was already ready with effectively deposit insurance and was willing to shut down the the failed banks and everything else. So all of this is going on in the background in the euro crisis as well. I mentioned the institutions that eventually came up that markets were looking for, at least the banking union and a European rescue fund known as the European Stability Mechanism. All of that was sort of going on. But the euro crisis, I've always described it as an economic crisis, but it was also a political crisis. So Draghi, who later on became Italian prime minister (laughs) for a spell, was essentially speaking from one of the most influential posts, which is the European Central Bank presidency. And the markets believed the political will once he expressed it. What was really fascinating to me was he did end up creating a bond buying program, a conditional one known as OMT. The Germans were not happy about it because they don't like bond buying. They think it's um, basically uh, mutualizing debt. Mm. In other words, sharing responsibility for government debt when government revenues only go to the national governments. But what was interesting was OMT was never used. So it was just that he had the program 
that he could use. Mm. He never actually needed to use it. And that to me is an important point about credibility when it yeah. comes to the financial markets. So we talked about the euphoria that leads to crashes, the credibility of the institutions that are dealing with them as a way of repairing the damage. And that leads us to the third phase of your argument, which is the aftermath. You say at one point, the remedies for the last crisis often contribute to the next, which I think (laughs) is rather neat. Give us an example of what you mean by that. So after the dot-com bubble burst, there was a shallow and short recession in the United States. So from about March to November of 2001, the U.S. was in recession. I'm giving you the dates and specifically so you can recall that September the 11th, Mm. 2001 was also in that period. Given how traumatic that period of time was, the fact that the U.S. then came out of recession in November, it's just worth remarking on. Why was that? Well, there were supportive policies, support for people to buy automobiles, and monetary policy interest rates were slashed deeply in order to make sure that recession was mild. So now think early 2000s. You've seen not just the Nasdaq, but all the stock markets crash. Where are you going to put your money? Probably not in the stock market. Okay, there Mm. are professional investors who would say that's a good time to buy. But most people think I'm going to put it in the other asset that most people have access to, which is housing. So low interest rates reduced the cost of borrowing and mortgages, and it contributed to the housing boom. And 2005, 2006, the housing market peaked. And because cost of borrowing was cheap, lots of lenders wanted to get involved. And so they began seeking out borrowers to lend money to, including those known as ninjas, no-income jobs or assets, who were able to borrow mortgages. And investment banks found exotic ways of repackaging those mortgages and then selling it on to each other. And so you just ended up seeing how the 2001 policies to help that aftermath contributed to the housing boom, which then became, of course, the subprime crisis of 2008. And I guess there's a similar thing that we've seen more recently in the the response to the subprime crisis and the credit crunch in 2008, 2009 led to an era of super low interest rates and massive quantitative easing. So lots and lots of cheap money, which has only ended in the last year or so, and has contributed to very, very high inflation. Is that another example of a solution leading to or contributing to the next problem? Yeah, so the pandemic crash was extraordinary. Nine out of the top 10 biggest one-day falls in US stock prices, looking at the Dow Jones index of blue chip stocks, were in 2020. The lockdowns ended an 11-year bull run in markets. So when I said initially people put their money into housing, they did. But then the housing market burst in 2008. And then people started putting their money into stock markets. And so the stock market started to boom. So it did result in a restarting of injections of cash by the central bank known as quantitative easing or QE. These cycles of low rates and cheap borrowing, this is something which happens across booms and busts, which is why I always end up saying where there's a boom, there'll be a bust. Where Mm -hmm. there's a bust, there'll be a boom. But of course, it's the timing of those things that's the most important. 
end. And that's where I suggest make sure you don't become too indebted, don't pile in too much. And for policymakers to have credible policies, because you're never really going to be able to fully prevent the next boom and bust. Mm. But what you can do is try and mitigate the impact on people and on viable businesses. The most important thing is just to make sure that people are supported and viable businesses do not go under because of a cyclical downturn. Mm. And if you look at the Great Depression, that was the major lesson to be learned, which is had they supported demand, the Great Depression may not have been such a terrible ordeal. And then if you look at the Great Recession, which is what the recession after 2008 is called, austerity uh, during a period of weak demand. The IMF, which is known for giving advice on fiscal discipline, said, oh, we got the multiplier wrong. It turns out <laughs> austerity doesn't really, you know. So to me, those are the kinds of lessons to bear in mind. Let's move towards conclusion by looking at the future. You make the point that whereas for most of the 20th century, most financial and economic activity was domestic, the last 40 years or so have seen a very significant internationalization of trade. Does that mean that the next great crash, when it comes, is necessarily going to be global rather than national? It is an absolutely great point to sit back and look at. So the 50s and 60s were um, recovering from World War II. That period was known as the golden age of economic growth. So there weren't financial crises of any sizable magnitude, and there was very strong growth in average incomes. So what happened in the 70s? Well, starting in the 60s and going into the 70s, you began to get a sense of how linked um, economies were, and therefore financial markets were also linked. And it was a period in which financial liberalization of domestic markets was speeding up. So the example that's probably most familiar to people is the 1986 Big Bang in the city of London that opened up the UK and actually made it a financial, international financial center for the 20th century. And so what you have is hot money, which is what short-term capital is called, flowing very quickly across markets. As trade links are linked, commodity trading, all various things are going across markets, financial markets are increasingly linked. So what you have is an internationalization of financial markets, which means you have an internationalization of financial crises, mm. which means you see that more and more, um, there are more financial crises, which are not limited to one country or region, but spreads quickly around the world. So the Asian financial crisis that I write about, that was a late 1990s crisis, which struck fast growing Asian economies, which was quite a surprise to most forecasters. But it is like J.K. Galbraith said, the sole function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable. <laughs> and so that Asian financial crisis then spread to Turkey, to Russia, and then to Latin America um, by the early 2000s. And Argentina became the biggest country rescue in history until, of course, Greece um, later yes. on that decade. Um, and it wasn't just emerging markets. That crisis also brought down um, the biggest hedge fund in the United States, which I think pretty much makes it the biggest hedge fund in the world, which was LTCM, which uh, had on its uh, books, not one, but two Nobel laureates in economics. <laughs> 
So this kind of contagion is something that has um, increased the frequency of crisis. And we see that certainly um, in terms of the creation of global bodies like the Financial Stability Board, because once financial crises become global, then the regulation also needs to become global. And you now have um, regulators that work across different countries. And this is something that reflects just the fundamental change in terms of the way that financial markets are constituted. But that also presents an enormous challenge when it comes to China, doesn't it? Mm. Which you end your book on. And I started talking about in my introduction, if people were to ask where is the next great crash going to come from, there's a strong argument that it might come from China, which is certain economic problems at the moment, not least a housing euphoria. So should we be looking east, the next great crash? And crucially, can we do anything about it? Yeah, it's a great point to try and reflect on. So I've been advised as an economist never to predict an event and the timing. You can only do one or the other. So uh, the event is China is overdue for a crash. And would it be a great crash? Remember, the key I'm looking for always is the amount of debt. Given the amount of debt in the Chinese system, chances are if it crashes, it will be a great crash. And also China is overdue for a crash. It's had 40 years of not having a great crash, which is fairly unheard of, even for a country where the state has such a big role to play. Mm. Um, China is um, now hugely indebted in terms of the property sector. And there's a legacy of debt in this banking system from the state ownership of lots of enterprises. The next great crash may not be China. At the moment, we've avoided a great crash in uh, US mid-tier banks. And I say mid-tier banks, but of the three banks that failed this spring, Those three rank among the top five biggest bank failures in U.S. history. So these are big bank failures. They just didn't become a great crash. And this is one of the lessons for China. The U.S. government acted decisively, very quickly, and quite credibly. So for China, is there a lesson there? Well, China's already in the grasp of trying, not very successfully at the moment, of deflating a property bubble. So the property uh, companies are struggling and the biggest ones have missed bond payments. That's normally a sign that if you can't pay your creditors, you're probably in some degree of distress. And the property sector, if you include um, related services, is an astounding 29% of national output. Wow. So they're already at the point where um, there was euphoria, house prices in the major cities in China rival, exceed that of London, New York, and trying to manage the debt problems of the property sector. That is basically where China is at, at the moment. So this lesson I just mentioned about the United States, quick, decisive action, which has to be credible. And that's where China's institutions would be challenged because China hasn't had a great crash, but it has had crashes. So that's the worry. Even though China owns the banks, if you have to put in that much support, it could affect confidence of people, of firms. But I would say, would it have a global impact? Yes. So one of the things I'm very concerned about is China is the world's biggest official lender. It's bigger than the World Bank, the IMF, the 22 rich countries that make up the Paris Club. So given how much developing countries in particular rely on Chinese lending, if the Chinese economy has a crisis and they stop lending or worse, call in their loans, 
that's going to deeply impact a number of developing countries and emerging markets. That's how a Chinese crisis could become a global Mm. um, one. The subtitle of your book is Lessons from Global Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them. What would you highlight by way of conclusion as the single biggest lesson we can take home from financial history? Well, I'm actually going to end with a lesson which might be a bit surprising, which is the epilogue of the book. I write about uh, the Great Reset. So all of these lessons are can be quite technical in terms of debt and you know leaning against the bubble. But to me, the lessons worth dwelling on and reflecting on are actually the reset we had after the COVID-19 crash. Countries became hugely indebted, but it's because they supported people's incomes and viable businesses. And even with that level of debt, the IMF, which is um, usually very focused on bringing down debt, they suggest that governments should borrow to invest to grow. And so if you were to invest in green industries, if you were to invest in digital capabilities, all that would generate a greater return um, for national output, for jobs, for investment in the future. So to me, that would be the most satisfying lesson from all these great crashes, which is just the reset. The book is called The Great Crashes, Lessons from Global Meltdowns and How to Prevent Them. Linda Yu, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. Thank you so much for having me. Next week, I'll be speaking to Dan Dennett about his autobiography, I've Been Thinking. Our souls are made of lots of tiny robots, uh, motor proteins and ribosomes and cells, and for that matter, bacteria and viruses by the trillions. And people find the view of themselves as the generation of trillions of little microparts. They find that repugnant. They find that ugly. I find it magnificent. I think fantastic. Imagine being able to make a soul out of all of these little moving parts. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Daniel Turner, Fiona Hanscom and Chinny MacDonald. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk, where you can find details of a special live event in London this November, in which we'll be talking about the coming age of the machine with Lord Robert Skidelsky. We hope to see you there.